Hi, everybody. Welcome to the containment unit. This is Janine Melnitz. What can I do for you? Put on your bunny slippers. It's slime for the Ghostbusters containment unit podcast with your hosts, Matt and Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the containment unit podcast. I'm Tom. Here with me, not physically because he's in the car, uh, is my bestie and yours, Matt Sanders. How are you, sir? Tom, uh, I'm doing well. I'm driving home and I'm not in any traffic at the moment. It looks like it's about to rain, but outside of that, my soul is well. My soul is well. How are you, buddy? Not bad. out of the uh, signing fog, uh, we had a bunch of signings back to back and a lot of travel. And uh, I've been yeah. shipping stuff for the past uh, the week or shipping. so. The great the shipping. shipping. The shipping has happened. Uh, it's in the process of happening. If you're listening to this and if you've paid me already, then your item is on the way, unless it's being held for uh, Reginald. I don't have the Reginald Bell Johnson items yet, uh, but I'm expecting those in the next few days. Uh, but yeah, everything else is, is uh, going out as people pay their invoices. Uh, you know, you got to reply to an email to get your item shipped. If you haven't replied to the email, then your item's not shipped. Simple as that. I like to think that we're pretty generous people, Tom, but I don't think we're going to be paying for everybody's shipping. No, and so, I, I stopped a long time ago. Um, I, don't, I don't ship until it's paid because I, I've had issues where I've had to chase people down for payment, for shipping, um, you know, that there was one case with one of the Jack Johnson prints that six months later, and I, I just, um, I just ended up shipping it. And then it was probably six months after I shipped it. So about a year total, uh, I finally got paid for it. So no, I'm not doing it anymore. Um, yep. but everything's ready to go for the most part. I, I'm just waiting for the Reginald items. Uh, I ran out of, uh, containment unit author, uh, authentication stickers, the holograms, if you will. Uh, so I'm waiting on those, but they'll be here in a couple of days, so it won't really impact things. I love me those holograms. Pretty fun, right? Uh, so I was thinking before we jump into some of the other topics that we wanted to discuss, um, we asked the group for questions and we got a couple. <laughs> so, Wait, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, uh, let's, let's just jump through those real quick. Uh, the first comment was a very flattering photo of me from Monster Mania, so we'll move on from that. Well, it's multiple questions, I guess. Concerns Ernie Hudson. Um, okay. Ernie got he got cast in the uh, reboot of Quantum Leap, uh, so he had to cancel his uh, appearance at Monster Mania, which is where we were intending to sign with him. Um, we've had signings delayed before. It's not a cancellation at all. It's just a reschedule. Ernie himself has moved on us before. Uh, we were supposed to do a signing in L.A., um, he had a change in his work schedule and we ended up doing it in Minnesota. So uh, right now his schedule is in flux. Uh, we're in contact with his appearance manager and uh, we're just waiting for a time we can reschedule it. Um, if we have an opportunity to reopen orders, we probably will. Um, but just kind of in a pin. There's a pin in it right now at the moment. And who, who doesn't like going back to what you said prior who wouldn't rather do a signing in icy cold Minnesota? I mean, 
that was great. Hey, I'll go back to Minnesota if that's what the man would like. <laughs> okay with that. Yes, I, I think the, the reality is there's so many moving pieces and logistics Especially right now. I mean, Ernie just got that role. He's got a, he's filming in Canada. They got to get, get that all figured out. And then he's got to get the schedule. We got to know when he's open. Like there's so many pieces, Tom. And yeah. uh, it's just a matter of everything coming back into alignment. It's going to happen. I don't think either of us are worried about that. It's just no. a matter of when. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not worried about it at all. Again, it's just, it's a scheduling change. We Randy Cook was delayed almost a year. Uh, it just happens right. sometimes. We've been really lucky in that most of our signings have just gone, gone ahead. You know, uh, we haven't yep. had any delays or whatever. But you know, it here it is. It happens, so it's fine. Two uh, more uh, the logistics of how Bob Gunton signing is going to proceed. Fairly straightforward. It's a mail in by Bob's choice. Correct. So Bob Correct. doesn't want to do any signings in person due to the COVID situation, his age, et cetera. So uh, he asked that it's through the mail and uh, we support that. So we will be mailing the items to Bob. Uh, I, I can't speak to a time frame quite yet. We have a deadline for Bob, but we have other things coming up as well. Uh, and some of those items cross over. So sometime in April, but that's the best I can give you right now. Yeah, and our promise will be that um, we will keep you all in the loop. Uh, we will let you know when things are shipped out. We will let you know when Bob shipped things back. We will keep you in the loop when it comes to shipping your items to you. So, um, But as Tom said, there's a couple things coming up where you might want an item that you have for Bob to be signed by someone else right before Bob. And so we got to stay flexible and Right. It'll work out. It'll work it out. Yeah, yeah. It's it, the problem with uh, with doing from the same movie, uh, in this case, Afterlife, is that, uh, you know, you get a lot scheduled at once. And we've got at least uh, immediately three coming up from Afterlife, four if you include Ernie. Um, so, you know, things just kind of go when they can. So, uh, you know. It'll happen when it happens, um, but sooner rather than later. Uh, question. Well, I like this one. We're going to have to talk about it, but I'm going to jump to the, the one after it. Uh, someone asked about the topic, because you and I have talked about this, but we haven't talked about it publicly. Um, someone asked about a Vigo project, because we do the ghost yes. projects. But then they tagged on and they said, well, what about other Ghostbusters 2 projects? Because we've only oh. done two so far. And I have some very, I have some very clear thoughts on it. I, and I think that you and I are mostly on the same page, but uh, Vigo isn't yeah. going to happen. I would love for it to be able to, but it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of hard when Wilhelm is no longer around. Like and Max when von Vigo himself, right, the body and the voice are both right. deceased. Yeah. And so at that point, it, it's hard. And, and we've talked about, uh, you know, Howie Weed played uh, the possessed version of Vigo when Ray is possessed. And right. we've talked about, we've talked with Howie and, and he's somebody that we'd like to do a signing with. Um, you know, he's actually a signer for 
the Ghostbusters 2 Slimer project. So that's going to happen at some point. Again, it's a matter of scheduling, but that'll happen. But as far as the full project, no. Um, because uh, Glenn Etchison isn't interested. Uh, he's the guy who did the living uh, photo, or sorry, living painting photo top photography. So he's probably the guy most responsible for Vigo, as you know, the look. Um, as you said, Wilhelm's deceased, Max von Sydow's deceased, Lou Police did some of the initial concept paintings. Um, he's really the only one that I, I think that we could engage with. Uh, we haven't reached out to him. Um, it's somebody eventually that, yeah, we'd love to. He's on a list that we that we maintain. Um, but, you know, things come in this, the order kind of that they happen, I guess. Um, as far as Ghostbusters 2 projects go, the only other one that really makes sense, I guess, would be the Scolari brothers. Um, because you've got Jogger Ghost, which is just Jim. You've got right. Statue of Liberty, which is Jim. And then I guess you could put the people who fabricated the costume on there. Um, there's a Subway Ghost. But that's probably one. It's like it, it's not on or the theater ghost. I'm sorry. It's not unlike the Subway Ghost, probably. Uh, where it was just Steve Johnson did it, but it wasn't Steve on Ghostbusters 2. Uh, so Scolari Brothers is something that you and I have talked about. We've gone back and forth on it. We've had a couple concepts. Uh, yep. The short answer is... We definitely, we're definitely hot and cold on the idea at different times. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, Tim is no longer with us, and Tim is half of the Scolari Brothers. And beyond that, beyond him being the guy in the costume... He was also extremely instrumental in the creation of those characters and those looks. You know, when you think about people like uh, Steve Johnson, Mark Brian Wilson, uh, Billy Bryan, Randy Cook, and their contributions to the characters on GB1, um, Tim is as critical to the, uh, the look of the characters in Ghostbusters 2. And that's kind of why we did the Slimer 2 project uh, as a, a, what do you want to call it, dedicated to Tim. Right. Yeah. I was trying to think through. So for Ghostbusters 2, we've got Slimer and Washington Square Ghost. That's it, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I would love, I would love, but the Peter McNichol is the issue, but <laughs> I would love to do the nanny that, you know, snatches Oscar off the ledge. That yeah. would be a fun one, but Peter won't sign. Um, right. it, it just it's that's tough but going back to the timothy lawrence we we have thought about do we do a print with a facsimile signature from tim with the blessing of his family and then add jim to it mm -hmm. but we're just not i don't think we're sure that people are that interested in it um, well yeah i think It's also, you know, we, it's a little inside baseball, but we also thought about doing something with the facsimile signature for the ghost farmer. Um, that opens up a can of worms. Uh, and we're about authenticity here. We would never want to, you know, it'd be more something done in tribute than, I don't know. We would never want to mislead anybody and think it's a legit signature. And, you know, Jim is a friend. Uh, Jim is somebody who we will have a signing with at some point. Just we haven't scheduled it yet. Um, 
and so yeah we'll have to make a decision at that point do we do a scalary brothers project or not i, I my gut tells me no uh which is unfortunate because I, I love scalary brothers i know you do as well and a lot of people do but um it's just hard with Tim being so essential there. And, and, and Tim was essential to Slimer as well in GB2. Um, and, and the project's dedicated to him. He is a big piece of it, but there's a, a, a bunch of people that were a big piece of Slimer. Uh, Siegel, Mark Siegel was involved in Slimer and GB2. Robin, obviously, how we worked on Slimer. So there's a lot of different folks we can add to that project. Scalari, Jim, and Hank Mayo, and Howie, and but, Howie. But again, I, I, it's uh, it's tough. That's yeah, tough. it's it's hard. So that's our answer. <laughs> I can't imagine. Project. Just in general, Tom, you would know maybe better than me. I can't imagine there is that many combo one one item signed by both jim and tim for scalari brothers like i know you've got the killer 11 by 14 i was so close but it didn't happen but i do have a trading card or two signed by both jim and tim for scalaries but outside of that i haven't seen too many i mean tim signed through the mail if you wrote to him but i think that outside of the con that we met him at i don't think that he did many others maybe one other and unless you got them through the mail i i did years ago um but yeah i have the two uh square brother combos i imagine that a bunch of people got them on posters or something at fan fest uh because they were both there but but it's not the we same. haven't seen yeah and we haven't yeah it's just like moranis though like moranis did a con shortly before fan fest and nothing has really come out from that either so you know, if these items are signed, they're living in people's collections. Yeah. Now we, uh, you may want to cut this out, Tom, you can do that. But we have talked about uh, an, a cool opportunity with Jim and Tim that we're working on. And mainly it's just because we've been so busy with other things. I haven't been able to execute this. But one of the things we've talked about doing to raise money for the charity uh, that Tim's family is, is trying to support is we do have, you mentioned uh, Tim signing through the mail. We have all his personal stock photos and, um, and Jim has agreed to sign them and to that we can sell them for charity. So we are working on that. That will be eventually available. It won't have Tim's signature, but at least the photo is from Tim's personal collection signed by jim uh so it's pretty cool but yeah that might be the closest we can get at this point and that'll be on ghostbustersautographs.com is that right at some point at some point it will be but everyone yeah. will know about it when that time is here <laughs> yeah yep it'll happen uh okay so the question in the group that we can get to in a second but before that i want to talk about one thing that was people have been asking about we've gotten more than a couple questions on it uh and so i want to i want to address it and and but i'm not gonna answer it if that makes sense i'm on the edge of my seat tom so mckenna grace has signed with a appearance manager and is available for conventions this year and other signing opportunities 
Um, I will share the information that that manager is the same manager that represents Finn Wolfhard and Logan Kim. Do the math, man. Do the math. Lots of plans uh, for 2022 and, and nothing has changed in that regard. So um, stay tuned for future announcements. Well, we haven't talked in a while. You know, I've been traveling, uh, got back and I've been shipping like crazy. You've been off the chain, busy with work. Uh, we we yep. had to had to squeeze in uh, this time to record an episode. Uh, when I was uh, back east, for Monster Mania, I made a purchase on eBay. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. It is a copy of Ghostbusters Hellbent by Dan Aykroyd. Let's pretend that I'm an idiot or very new mm-hmm. to all of this. What does that mean? What is Hellbent? Uh, Hellbent was the, was the version of Ghostbusters 3 that Dan Aykroyd wrote in the 90s. Uh, he spent a number of years trying to get it produced. Uh, when you hear things, uh, you know, hear Dan Aykroyd prior to 2009 talking about Ghostbusters 3, it's this. And uh, copies are out there, a few of them, and one popped up on eBay. I confirmed it's legit. I've read it. And uh, yeah, kind of cool. It's one of those holy grail things that you never think you're going you're gonna to have a chance to read. But um, it's interesting because it's the last, thing that dan Aykroyd has written as of today ghostbusters related like the last he never wrote a draft of uh ghostbusters 3 after this as far as we know or if there are other drafts of hellbent this is a first draft uh they've never surfaced but they they worked on hellbent pretty much until 09 when they they brought on the dudes from the office to write a version of ghostbusters 3 and then Ethan cohen i think was on ghostbusters 3 and then ultimately uh answered the call and then afterlife so and so my question is, as you're reading through this script, can you see it being something that would have been good on screen? This movie would be extremely expensive to make in its current okay. version. Okay. And it is a little rough around the edges. But I think that the bones of a pretty cool Ghostbusters idea are there. And I think it would have been an awesome... Like, if this had happened in the 90s, uh, and that was the end of Ghostbusters until they brought it back with Afterlife, it would have been fantastic. Like, it would have been a great way to end Ghostbusters, and then they kind of brought it back, you know, 30 years later or whatever. Um, so I could see it being the Ghostbusters 3 that we never got. I, I can also see the video game, though, being that Ghostbusters 3 that we never got. You know, it's, but at the same time, I don't want to give anything away about the script. Uh, that's not what I'm going to say. But I want to say this. Uh, talked about Ghostbusters 3 for decades in the Ghostbusters fandom. It was always the movie we wanted to see. It was our dream. And, and if this is the first version of Ghostbusters 3 that was written, which I believe it was. I don't think they tried before Hellbent. It became very clear to me that there was never going to be a Ghostbusters 3 ever that was the same movie as Ghostbusters 1 and Ghostbusters 2. It was always a passing the torch movie from the the first inception of Ghostbusters 3. It was never just, hey, here's a third movie with the guys that you love. It was always a new team. 
and all that, even when the, the guys were in their fifties, you know, or forties, late forties, which was surprising yeah. to me. Um, you know, I expected that there was out there Ghostbusters three that followed the four Ghostbusters that we've come to know and love. And that's just not the case. Um, you know, that the guys are in it for sure. Um, but it's just, it, it took me by surprise a little bit. It wasn't really what I expected. Yeah. But in everything you've said, with it being a first draft, it's not surprising that you would have to reel it in and tighten it up and, and all of that. But it is right. always fun to think what could have been. What could have been. Exactly. Yeah. I, I would have loved to see it, especially when thinking about who they would have cast in these roles, these new roles. Yeah. Is this is this uh, the film where Bill Murray's hit by a bus or Peter Bankman was hit by a bus in the very beginning? Because Ivan Reitman talked about that prior to the release of Afterlife. I would have been hellbent, right? So I will say I think it was hellbent. But what I have is a first draft. And, and what I've heard through the grapevine is that there was a couple other drafts. At one point, I guess Harold was involved in a draft. I don't know if he wrote on it or not. But um, in the first draft, uh, Peter Venkman does not appear in the opening. Ah, okay. So I've heard that as well. I, and I, I don't know if maybe, I don't know when that talk started of like the Bill Murray dying in the first reel. Like that could have been the office guy's script um, and then the other guy's script, which one of those was called Alive Again. I don't know which one was which or if they were the same or, or what have you. Um, but I remember pretty early on Dan Aykroyd talking about like, oh, Bill Murray only do it if he's a ghost. So I feel like that was incorporated into Hellbent. I just don't think anybody's read that. Gotcha. But I'm not an expert, but, so call me out if I'm wrong. I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to keep our eyes open on eBay for draft two and three or <laughs> whichever, so we can Never get the fuller picture here. Indeed. Jim in our group uh, has a great question. What is an autograph not an autograph? secretarials, book plates, etc. I'm interested to see what your perspectives are on what does and doesn't make the cut. That is, it's an interesting question. And uh, it's not one that I've thought about before. So I have a couple of thoughts on it. Uh, an autograph to me is something that is signed by so a secretarial doesn't count. A book plate, sure, because they signed it. Uh, but right. if they thing though, sometimes somebody's signature is a couple of wavy lines. Other times it's every letter. But whatever marking they make, autograph or as their signature, that is an autograph to me. Yeah. So but then. Okay. So our buddy Pete has a photo of Bill Murray signed as Dr. Peter Venkman or Dr. P. Venkman. I, I forget exactly what it looks like. But Bill Murray didn't actually sign his name. He only signed Peter Venkman's name. But to me, that still counts as an autograph because Bill Murray did that. But there's no actual autograph. There's no signature on it. Right. 
I'm trying to think because I, I totally agree with everything you said. A secretarial is not an autograph. A stamp is not an autograph. Like I remember is not an autograph. Uh, right. And I remember going to baseball games and you could go and very cheaply get a stamped baseball that's signed, quote unquote, by the whole team. Um, and it's just a stamp. That is not an autograph. But I'm, I'm trying to think, like, for me, an autograph, it, it's like a, it's capturing or collecting a moment in time. Originally, when you would meet this celebrity. Um, and I'm not trying to take away anything we do from signings and stuff. But here's, here's what I'm like. Would you count? And we see this a lot, especially with deceased actors and like someone I'm trying to buy an autograph of and, or collect an autograph of is Walt Disney. So you'll see in a lot of like checks mm-hmm. signed by Walt Disney. Would you classify that as an autograph? Is there a difference between an autograph and a signature? Or are they? I don't think so. Thing? See, I don't think so. I, I think an autograph and a signature are the same thing. Okay. You know, people buy... work uh, of the little girl from poltergeist you know that's still that that girl heather o'rourke that's her signature essentially you know she printed it or whatever uh right so but i mean but here that 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 opens up another question like there are people who their autograph is much different than their signature right their autograph is something they sign for the public yeah for private documents it's different correct Huh. So I get I I guess like if I was putting together a, a real Ghostbusters piece and I my heart set on adding Lorenzo music to it, I would probably buy a check. Yep. With signature on it. It also would have everybody else's signature on it. But the signature might vary, you know, it might maybe not I mean, I don't know how many autographs Lorenzo Music signed in his life, but maybe the signature is different. I don't know, but it's still authentic. It's still signed by him. So I would say as long as the celebrity, the notable person, the pen was in their hand, that, that counts, whatever it is. Okay. Here, let me throw another one at you. I, and I, I agree at the end of the day, uh, a, a real autograph that counts or a signature that counts is one that's authentically signed by the hand of those that you're intending it to be signed by. Um, so what about like, you, you would remember this as a star Wars fan. There were several shows where Phil Brown, who was play, who played uncle Owen in a new hope. Uh, he was older. He had some health issues and so literally there are stories where people would meet him and his wife would hold his hand and move his hand for him because he could not do it himself. Does that count? No. That because man should not have been pen? doing cons at that age. That's elder abuse at that point. I, I don't know that I disagree. I, I mean, I... Very different, but almost the same. Um, the last couple okay. times I've seen Stan Lee, it felt that way. But he was freely moving his own hand. But it, so we're, oh, I guess what we're saying is it's not enough for the pen just to be in their hand. 
think about it this way. If you wrote to somebody and the autograph was 100% undeniably authentic, but the, the two mat was done by their secretary, would you remove the two mat? Oh, I would 100% love. that it was not the same handwriting. Oh, uh, Amelia Park will do that. If you write to her in the mail and you get a response, she'll pre-sign a bunch of cards and then her manager will write the dedication to whoever. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of the two minds there. Um, part of me, like, if I'm not intending to sell it, I really don't care. But at the same time, I would have no problem because it's not the celebrity's handwriting. I'm not losing their handwriting. So I, it, to me, there's no value to it. Yeah, I, I have a I have a Russell Crowe that I got through the mail, uh, God, twenty two years ago probably, and um, it's got a secretarial inscription, but the autograph is good. And and for the life of me, I cannot get it off. <laughs> it, it won't come off. I've tried every trick in the book, so it's just kind of on there. But it, it drives me nuts because it's not their handwriting. So it's just this random person writing on the photo, you know. Um, yeah. You know, but like when, when you're a collector uh, and when we talk about signatures versus, um, you know, autographs and stuff, you know, I have a book here. I have a, a copy of Ruth Oliver. Uh, she was the, the actress who played the library ghost. Uh, she did a poetry book and it's signed. You know, that's maybe an autograph. Maybe it's a signature. I don't know. But sometimes when you're looking, you know, especially older um people who are no longer with us and they haven't been with us for a very, very long time. It's like, you take what you can get, um, you know, to complete a piece and, you know, is a signed letter. Is that an autographed letter? Is it a signed letter? Who knows? Um, but yeah. I mean, as long as the person signed their name under their own power, <laughs> I guess uh, yeah. that, that counts. If that's good enough for me. But I do think there could be some interesting conversation around the difference between an autograph and a signature. But uh, yeah, so anyhow, that, that was a good question. It's very uh, thought provoking. Yeah. So Jim, you better be listening to this episode. That's all I got to say. Um, yeah, Matt, it's been really busy lately. Uh, we had our signing with Logan. It went great. Uh, that kid is super cool. Uh, he's going to have a, a very long, amazing career ahead of him. Uh, our signing with Reginald Bell Johnson uh, happened. The boys at uh, East Coast Signatures uh, handled that one for us. Uh, so I'll have those items back soon. Danielle Kennedy happened. Ira Hyden happened. Uh, Kim Heron happened. All, all amazing opportunities, all great signers. Uh, you're listening to this, uh, at least close to when it drops, you have about a week left uh, to get orders in for our current signing uh, with Bob Gunton, the amazing, talented, multifaceted Bob Gunton. Uh, you know him as the ghost farmer in Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, among many, many other roles. Um, he's in some amazing films, Matt. And uh, he really is. We, we had a... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I know we joke about this, but we're not joking. Like, we don't intentionally we don't want to put pressure on people or hype signings but for any of you who are in time if i'm misspoken here you can correct me if i'm way off out of base off base here but 
if you're debating on whether or not you should add Bob to a Ghostbusters afterlife piece, to me, the answer is yes. Right? It's shocking to me because I, you know, I looking at all the orders, the people who are adding Ernie afterlife pieces, but not Bob, crazy because Bob is Egon. Yeah, and and like so, leading up to Afterlife, Jason had said so many times, "Protect the ending, protect the ending." There's yeah. a twist. There's this big reveal. That's Bob. Like, yeah, it's such a huge part of the film. It is. It's surprising, and I think people are going to regret it. Um, but that being said, like the signing is very, very well. It's just there's a ton of these cast pieces that we're actively working on. Um, that people are choosing to send in and, and that's unfortunate, you know, uh, typically our signings are one and done. Um, yep. We don't often go back uh, to, to folks again, because every time we set up a signing, it, it involves uh, minimum quantity, time, uh, interest on the signers part, all that stuff. So, you know, and, and we get busy. There's other stuff that, that isn't firmed up yet that could firm up tomorrow. And then we're even busier. So, you know, if yep. you're thinking about it, uh, you've got a few more days. Matt and I have always looked at Bob since I, found, I walked out of that premiere at Bob was an essential ad to afterlife. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, and it may not make the final cut of this conversation, but like we've already hit the minimum order for Bob. So whether or not we get any more orders from here does not matter to me at all. So I'm, Truly, as, as a friend and a fellow collector, like, I, I'm just saying this out of love. Like, if you are on the fence about getting Bob, especially on a cast piece, you 100% absolutely should. I have nothing to gain at this point by having you get him, but I think you should. I would agree with that. And, you know, we, we spent uh, about an hour talking with Bob, and it was great. Uh, we're both fans. And he told us a lot about movies that we love and about afterlife, which we love and about his life. And uh, it's, it's one of my favorite interviews that we've done. And it's, it's so, so good. And you're going to listen to that uh, right here. You've got an opportunity still uh, through the end of March uh, to get your order in for Bob. And uh, again, we we're excited about it. I'm, I'm beyond I, the amount of pieces that I'm ordering from Bob is ridiculous. And it, I, I that fully acknowledge confirmed. that. That is yeah. confirmed. The amount that Tom has ordered for Bob Gunn yeah. is insane. Yeah, but I love it. I'm so excited because I love Bob Gunson's work. He's a great actor. I've been a fan of his since for decades, going back to yep. Demolition Man, you know, and 24. Uh, so, yeah, it's just it's super exciting. And, and we're really excited. If you haven't watched the interview on YouTube, here's your chance. You audio only listeners, you. Uh, our interview with Bob Gunton. But before we go, Matt. I just want to say and remind you, don't be a pick, all right? Be, be kind, be gracious, be patient, be loving. Patient. Nobody needs a pack. Let's underline patient. There we go. So don't be a pack and enjoy this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting interview with the cast and crew from Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I have to tell you that I am super excited 
to introduce to you Mr. Bob Gunton. Bob, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Uh, we're My excited pleasure. to have you. And um, we'll just kind of, if you have not seen the Ghostbusters Afterlife film yet, please do not listen any further. Uh, you mm -hmm. need to make sure you check that out. Um, but uh, it's interesting, and this is not something that we planned, but we are meeting with you today on the anniversary of Harold Ramis's death. And um, I just, the timing, the way it lined up is very interesting. And um, so uh, the, the, and your role in the film was a huge part in paying homage to him um, and all of that. So we'll get into that, but I'm just curious right out the gate. Um, so you were at Ghostbusters Fan Fest. Tom and I were at Ghostbusters Fan Fest on the Sony lot back mm -hmm. in June of 2019, I think. Oh, I was there. Did you, yeah. I Did you there. have any idea at that point that you would be working on this film? No, no. I didn't have any point. I didn't have any uh, notion even after I was asked to do the thing that your hat says, a movie called Rust City. And there was no telling me what my assignment was going to be. It's something, it's something about... Uh, um, playing a, a, a role as somebody else. It was very vague. And it wasn't until I arrived in Alberta that I really found out what this assignment was. Uh, I, at the, initially, I viewed it as an assignment because I thought, oh, they're going to stick those things to me and do a motion thing, and, which I hate to, in, in movies uh, that I see. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if it's someone that, you know, has either uh, uh, left this world or, you know, is not available or is available, but doesn't want to do it, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Sure. But uh, Jason took me aside and explained very, very carefully that this was going to be, first of all, as Ghostbusters. And I know that because I said hello to Bill Murray. I just worked with his, with his brother, uh, in a, uh, a pilot, and we've worked together before uh, in uh, a movie. So I knew it was Ghostbusters, and actually when I met him, he was wearing, you know, the Ghostbuster drag and was his usual rise self. Um, but anyway, Jason said this is, this is going to be a very, very important moment in the movie, because what is, what is happening, and he didn't know to the extent that I was aware of Ghostbuster history, but when he said, uh, uh, we're bringing, we want to bring back Egan so that he can, first of all, kind of hand the baton off to a new generation of Ghostbusters. And just as importantly, <clears throat> especially encouraging his granddaughter, but more, more important was to heal a rift uh, that had um, come from, from his departure and uh, his issues with uh, his daughter, who is now the mom of the uh, new Ghostbuster hero. He said, why we have asked you to do this is because we don't want just this 
facade or the, this uh, representation of um, of Egon and of Harold, because they're inseparable. Uh, for at least for Ghostbuster folks, we need to have an actor play these scenes with the children, and uh, especially with uh, uh, Carrie Coon, his daughter. And that would require a, a face that moved, eyes that could focus, and uh, even a body language of what was going on. And so I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll just play it and forget about any of the fact that, that you're going to make me look different. Uh, that doesn't hurt my feelings at all. But I am happy I get to actually act in this and not just be a... Uh, a model for a, a virtual person. So when I heard that, I thought, well, this is going to be very interesting. And particularly doing it in front of uh, Bill and Dan, being in their presence with the history that I know about, and even some of the private history among them that I've learned about, uh, it was kind of fun to be there and to, to really put myself where I think uh, Harold Ramis would have been in this situation and how he might play it. And um, so that really was the actor's task. And uh, I, I viewed it as quite a challenge, even not being able to see what, how they were gonna age me and morph that aging into Egon Spengler. So, and I was just there a week, but it was for all of the big uh, scenes at the end uh, where all the ghosts are getting off and, and we realize why Egon had bought this farm and how he had rigged things up and even how he had lured his, uh, his granddaughter mm -hmm. and into getting involved in this whole uh, ghost busting regime. Yeah. And so it was, it was really fun to do. It was not, it was not difficult because there were lots of emotional things going on there. And I just played those as honestly as I could. And of course I was absolutely gobsmacked when uh, I, I only had scenes actually written uh, for the end of the movie, the climax of the movie. But early on, they do a little teaser with the, uh, a, a car going through country roads and mm -hmm. the dirt farm, oh, yeah. whatever that's called. And the guy driving it, I mean, I, I'm not sure everybody understood immediately that that was Egon Spengler. But it was also Bob Gunton. And I, that was my introduction to what the character was going to look like that I was going to play in, in these scenes. And of course, I had nothing to do with driving the car or anything. That was, that was uh, somebody else virtualized. But uh, anyway, I, I had great fun doing it. And uh, also, you know, especially in view of the fact that uh, uh, Ivan has uh, passed away, sadly, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but for Jason to take his baton in the same way that uh, Egon's granddaughter takes his baton to run with, I thought was a very emotional and appropriate thing. And also it was very brave to bring that level of emotional uh, moment into something that had really, at least to my mind, had been more action and humor mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, kind of epic when it was in the New York version. Uh, and this would be about family. And that's what Jason has said yeah. uh, since in, in interviews, that this is really a story about a family reuniting in a common uh, thing to bust some ghosts, I guess. <laughs> I, I was in one of the early screenings uh, at New York Comic Con, and the first thing uh, coming out of that, because we were not prepared for it, I, I told Matt, I said, I'm not going to tell you anything about the movie, but you're not prepared for how emotional it is. And, you know, being fans our whole lives, you know, seeing the characters again is emotional, but as soon as your hand, uh, you know, comes in on, on the wand that McKenna's holding, it's, it's a completely different feeling entirely. And it, it just every Ghostbusters fan in that theater and at, at the premiere, it, there wasn't a dry, dry eye in the house. Um, and yeah. and you're right because that's not how those movies have been historically speaking. No, and I have to say that I read some of the notices, some of the critiques of the film before it came out, and um, I I read that uh, some of these critics had felt that this was kind of a cheap trick uh, to beg for, you know. Um, empathy or something that, that it was, they didn't think it was uh, correct to do. And uh, so I, I had some trepidation about it uh, when I saw it, before I saw it, which I saw with my granddaughter, by oh. the way, only appropriate. <laughs> and it Perfect. was around her birthday. So I had presented her too with the Hasbro uh, duo of Egon and his granddaughter, which I think is great, and I and I uh, inscribed it for for uh, Grace, who is our eleven year old, twelve year old uh, granddaughter, and it made the movie mean even more to me. I don't think it meant that much to her yet, but when the time comes that uh, I go wherever. Harold and everybody else goes when they pass through this world that this may be something of uh, interest to her and, mm-hmm. and meaningful yeah absolutely yeah you know it's interesting because Tom did see it first and he's like Matt you you're not ready and I said Tom the only thing I hope that does not happen I hope we do not see Ghost Egon I think that would be the most ridiculous thing in the world and then I'm sitting in the theater, the light turns, and then the hand that I see, and then your character's on screen. My mind is blown. I'm crying. <laughs> and I think it's like you said, I think it's the fact that it was a, a, a real actor who is obviously, as, as you are gifted in your craft, um, and I think too, what made it sold it too was watching Bill 
and Ernie and Dan and everyone else just get so emotional as you're on the screen. And it, the question I, I was wondering, um, when Harold's passing was kind of a quasi sudden, very secretive type thing. No one knew that he was sick. I was wondering if you got the sense that maybe you were not only just a stand-in for his character, but were you at all feel like you were a stand-in for Harold and this was kind of closure for the other cast and crew that you were working with? Well, as Jason explained, uh, Harold's family has been apprised of this from very early on. Uh, I think in order to test whether this was something that they felt comfortable with. And I think had they expressed any anything negative that uh, it might've been done differently or maybe a different story, but they were very much for this and they viewed it as a uh, honoring uh, uh, Harold's life and his uh, uh, particularly his role in, in Ghostbusters. <laughs> I have to say at the beginning when we were rehearsing and stuff, of course I was, just, it was just me. The only thing they put on was the the costume and the hair. They had gray pompadour. Uh, so that was as close as in real life I looked like Harold, which wasn't much at all. And all of them were kind of cocking their heads, wondering, is, is this going to work? And so uh, I wasn't with them when they saw it. But I hope they were reassured that, yeah, this works. And uh, the reaction I, I remember most during actually uh, doing the scene was Bill Murray kind of throwing out a, something like, yeah, I thought you'd show up in kind of this offhand, undercut, undercutting <laughs> way, which is so characteristic. And in a way, it made, it made that scene, for me anyway, even more emotional because mm -hmm. they were falling back into this kind of uh, relationship that they had had and off screen too. They had their different differences off screen, mm -hmm. uh, but it was knowing all of that and hearing his reaction to that. Um, I, I thought it was a terrific choice. And Carrie Akun is such a, wonderful actress she's great yeah because we had to go from oh my god it's my father little thing with the children and then turning and facing one another and what is communicated between them and i i hope and i think i did sing it um i did play that in a way that well, here I am for time being. I'm, you know, I'm very sorry about the things I didn't do and should have done, and and you know, in a way, deserting uh, the family. Um, and here I am, and I'm evanescing. I'm not going to be here for long. And to watch in her as she goes through the emotions of like everyone else's shock and then maybe anger a little this son of a gun uh, right you know came back to 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 do what 
besides help kill the uh, whatever that ghost was. <laughs> Biggie. Gozer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to see her register all of those emotions and to be able to take them in as, as Egon and process them in the space of, you know, maybe 30 seconds at most uh, was a real acting treat for me. And I think it was for her too, because it gave us something really, really um, important to each of us to say, to accomplish. And of course, not being able to speak or not choosing to speak of it. I, I'm not sure whether I'm clear totally on that. I know technically why it didn't happen, but uh, it's like, that was the rule. If you come back, you only get to say a couple of minutes and no, you can't talk to anybody. <laughs> so I played by those rules. Uh, but the but the information and the uh, emotion that we exchanged there uh, was such that I understand why Jason wanted an actor's eyeballs and basic bodily language uh, to be available as real. Mm -hmm. And so uh, right. it was very gratifying. I mean, just that thirty seconds, I would have, and I did. Fly, fly up to Alberta to uh, to uh, be a member of uh, Rust City. It, it's it's interesting to talk about the eyes, um, you know, because that uh, some of the other movies that have done similar things. Uh, one of the Star Wars movies brought back Carrie Fisher, and that comes to mind. Uh, uh -huh. Without the eyes, you get this uncanny valley, and it just doesn't look right. And and the effects in Afterlife are, are the best I've ever seen at at doing that. And Mm -hmm. uh, immediately when I the movie was over, I look in the credits and I saw your name and it said uh, Ghost Farmer and it didn't click to me. I was like, oh, maybe he was a ghost that got cut. And I immediately asked Eric, <laughs> right? I was like, what did Bob Gunton play in this? And he goes, he was Egon. And I was like, it blew my mind. Um, and I, because there was a, there was a shot that I really, really appreciate. And it's, it's when you are looking at Carrie and there's a close up of you and you give her that look that you said where, it's essentially you saying, I tried, but only with your eyes, but it, it's, it's very much, um, it looks very much like Harold to me, that, that, that reaction. And I wanted to know, you know, when you watched the movie for the first time, you, you, you said you had some trepidations originally, and, and then you're seeing it with your granddaughter. When you're seeing your body without your face, how much of yourself are you seeing in that performance? Well, I saw immediately. I mean, I, 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 as I said, when I got into this, I had no idea to the extent that uh, how, how unrecognizable I would be in order to be as recognizable as possible as, uh, as Harold. She looks up and she knows who it is. And uh, even, you know, probably sooner than anybody. And because they have a connection that uh, is another moment in, in that, whole ending that uh it's like i'm i'm your granddaughter but i'm gonna be your colleague too um th I'm, this interests me in a way it interested you and uh so that that information is exchanged so as i said with the, even before the camera pans up to my to my face just watching the, the hands you know, enfolding her and 
urging her and 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 uh, um, reassuring her that that's me, that that's me, and then I see the face, and mostly I see what I would expect a more elderly shouldn't say elderly he he would be my age now and i don't consider myself elderly <laughs> so, so it 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 rang immediately as as egon spengler but i could also see believe it or not i could see myself in that because the eyes and the body are very telltale and um, uh, I, I could see myself animating it. Now, I, I did spend some time after I found out who I was playing. I went on the internet and um, uh, actually watched a couple of interviews that Harold had done, including one uh, fairly close to his uh, uh, death. And um, I, I said, you know, I... I I am not anything like Harold, and first of all, I'm not that bright uh, and um, talented in the way that he is talented. So I, there was no question that I could do any kind of a um, mimicry of him. So I would ha just have to play the moments as this uh, heaven comes to earth for a moment, and it's just it's not quirky or anything. It's just pure exchanging information by uh, mutely to uh, the family and to the colleagues. So I, the whole time through, I was uh, I I've been prepared. Jason had prepared. He said, "You know, you're going to have to have, uh, and you do have some humility about this. That uh, it's going to be very hard for you to look at the screen and say, well, that's me,' but nobody's going to know it." And, uh, of course, a lot of people had the same reaction that you did. Um, like, what, what, who, how did they do that? And the, the, not knowing who the dirt farmer, not remembering who the dirt farmer is. But I was very, very happy and fulfilled. I thought the scenes were great. And there was just enough of me that I could... Uh, if I needed to, um, you know, explain it, I think it would be uh, available to anybody who watched it that, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, but, oh, that's him. I was, I'm curious, just this is less about your, the acting than more behind the scenes type stuff, but Jason had said leading up to this film, don't spoil the ending, don't spoil the ending. And your role was the big surprise. I was curious. So you already talked about to how you've had delays due to COVID and all that. But I'm did, like, how was the conversation about, you can't talk about this, or uh, did you have to sign a million NDAs or how stressful was it to keep your role under wraps? Because no, we did not know until we saw it. I mean, it was such a great secret, but it had to have been hard, I would imagine. Uh, it was difficult, I think, more because an extra year was added uh, to the release. And I, to tell you the truth, I, I had been um, wanting to get some intrigue going 
at least in my family and friends. I said, I just, I just did uh, a part uh, or had a part in a, a film that I think is just wonderful. And uh, it's going to be a blockbuster and I can't tell you anything about it or what my association with it is. And so I got a lot of, whoa, that's, that's heavy. Wait, you know, is this a CIA operation? Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't difficult to do because I understand. I wanted that scene to be explosively um, um, a shock initially. And then after the shock is what a, oh, how I'm so glad he got to come back. And isn't that wonderful? And that release. And uh, for me, it worked absolutely um, on the nose. Yeah, it works so well. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful that the movie exists and that that story was was to be told. It, one of the things that I, I've been very curious about, um, you know, the you talked about the living Egon scenes and that that you did those as well, because we were kind of unclear if you had. Um, and there's some photos that had been out for a minute. Um, but then Sony had asked them to be taken down of, we believe you, did you wear prosthetics um, for those scenes? No, that was, that was uh, part of the uh, digital oh. restructuring. Yeah. I, the only thing I wore was just the pompadour and not even the glasses because they oh, really? wanted to make sure the glasses were exactly um, in, in, you know, in relation to how Harold wore them, what they look like, etc. So I put a couple of dots on my face, but that was basically all there was. Um, so I, I must congratulate the cast for being able to look at me and react as if, um, not just Egan, but Harold had come back for a moment. And uh, I, I, was, I was surprised and I thought, oh, is this gonna work? Is anybody, is, you know, is this gonna be like doing a sword fight with a virtual dragon or something? <laughs> Everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, the, I, I was basically just the overall thing and uh, his pompadour. And the pompadour was gray. Yeah. And uh, they, they made it a little look a little like yours here, Tom. Uh, it, I'm slowly you know, becoming the dirt farmer uh, yeah. in 2022, as it turns out. <laughs> I mean, we've talked a lot about Ghostbusters, but I, I think it would be amiss to talk just, just a little bit uh, about some of your other works, unless Tom, you have any other Ghostbusters related questions? I'm all ready to talk about Demolition Man if you're, if you're uh, teeing me up here. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'll, we'll get there, but I mean, when I look through all the films that I know you in, and I know you had an illustrious stage career too, but you've worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood uh, in history, uh, Bill Murray, Sylvester Stallone, Morgan Freeman, Harrison Ford, George Clooney, and the list goes on and on and on. I was curious, and I know it, it might be tough and you may not be able to give one, but as you look back over your career, who are some of the, your favorite people you've been able to work with? Well, in the first big movie I, I did, which came about uh, when Alan Pakula came and saw me in an off-Broadway show, 
and invited me to be a part of the movie that he was just about to shoot. It was a movie called Rollover, and uh, the two stars were uh, Chris Christopherson and Jane Fonda. Now, I am a Vietnam veteran, and uh, that was the play was about Vietnam. So if Alan had mentioned to her that uh, <clears throat> that's where he found me at this at this play about Vietnam, um, I'm sure she started thinking, oh God, is this guy, is this uh, Hanoi Jane? Gonna, you know, that, is that gonna rise up? So um, uh, we'd only done one scene together and uh, I got home after we wrapped and there was a phone message and she said, Robert, this is Jane. Uh, uh, my husband and uh, children are going to see something on Broadway. I don't remember what show it was. Um, but we're having dinner at um, a restaurant near the, the, uh, the theater. And I was wondering if uh, you could join us, you know. And it was a wonderful steakhouse that I had never been in before and I was very um, kind of blown away because we had not spent much time together in the one scene that we did shoot and um, so it was uh, um, her, her son and daughter were there and her, her former husband and they were kind of doing their own thing and you know getting ready to see the theater and chatting themselves and um, at some point, we were talking about vulnerabilities and all that. And she brought up the, the Vietnam thing. She said, you know, there's, um, there's some things I did uh, in my younger life that, um, that I regret. Uh, and they were done with the best of intentions, but it, they were foolish. Um, uh, for someone to do, even though, so I understood that she was talking about her protest. She didn't know that I was anti-war before I got drafted, and even more so when I got back from Vietnam. Sure. I was very yeah. anti-war, so I'm, I was more on her side to begin with. But we, we talked about all that, and as um, I had a wonderful meal. And after I left, I thought she has just uh, rehearsed telling Vietnam veterans that she was sorry about uh, sitting on the gun and you know, mimicking shooting planes down and all that. And sure enough, a year later, she made her public statement uh, for the first time uh, admitting uh, in a way that that this was not a uh, a cool thing to do, hmm. so I felt very uh, blessed to to have been the recipient of that. And of course, I I, I was in no place to forgive her, but I certainly uh, was reassured that this was a wonderful woman, a very bright woman, uh, and uh, she. Show me a, a bit of uh, humility 
especially doing this to a Vietnam veteran. So it was very, wow. yeah. But the other person that I had a great time with was Jim Carrey. I did one of the- oh, uh, Yeah, uh, he's been you did. Yeah. You sure did. <laughs> and he, something we talked about spilled into the movie, if you ever watch it. Um, we were talking on, you know, on the chairs, uh, waiting for the setup of the scene, a scene that I wasn't in, but I, had, I was waiting for a scene that I would be in. So we were talking and I was so impressed by how bright and well-read he was, you know, the, the goofy stuff and the funny stuff was uh, so obvious, but like Robin Williams to see that other side. And I worked with Robin too, and we had the same kind of um, interaction. And he and his wife, Marcia took me out to dinner and um, he wanted to discuss Vietnam too. So it was, uh, it was interesting for me to talk to both of them. These things keep popping up. I just finished writing a memoir and Ooh, a lot of these oh. stories are like bumping up against one another. But anyway, here, the thing I want to tell you about uh, Carrie is uh, we were talking about that and also about um Shawshank Redemption which he felt very strongly about thought was a wonderful movie and all that mm -hmm. so then he said they called him to the set and it was in this cave and uh the um natives were worshiping this entity uh called uh, I don't remember <laughs> around with kaka a lot when uh, <laughs> we were talking about that so he gets in there and he notices that anytime anybody says shikaka they drop to their knees and they get up again and he says shikaka boom they're down on their knees again then he starts playing mother may i he goes poopy and they don't know what and his final word was shawshank redemption and again they they pull back but the sh at the beginning had them going on their knees and that came strictly out of the fact that that's what we had been talking about you know 15 minutes earlier and i couldn't believe it when i saw the movie <laughs> that he had uh, put in that little uh, plug for another film. Uh, but he was fun. And, and Robin was uh, spectacular. And I, I've, I've just enjoyed all of these folks I worked for. And I find, you know, people used to t talk about film versus theater and all that. I found that there was far more um, kind of people on edge and uh, um, kind of maneuvering among a cast, I had experienced that more in theater than I ever did in the movies. Now, I didn't have, uh, except for Shawshank, what, what anyone would call a major role in a lot of these movies. So maybe at that level, there's more of the... Uh, um, ill-disguised conflict 
But from where I was uh, working on, on uh, most of these films, it was just everybody's happy to be there. And uh, in most cases, the director was competent and sometimes even better than that. And uh, I, ju I just had fun doing it. Huh? So it's so amazing. I mean, you, you are, let's talk about Ace Ventura first, just real quickly. That's one of the most quotable lines, uh, quotable movies of all time. And I've been obsessed with that movie since like 95, whenever it came out. Uh, so much better than the first one. But one of the movies that I, I have been uh, uh, just a massive fan of since the first time I saw it when I was probably much too young to see it, but you know, that's another story is, is Demolition Man. I've had three seashells that I painted silver on the back of my <laughs> toilet for a decade. And I just, I love the movie so much and I don't know exactly what it is about it, but it's such a great film. And I just was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about your experience working with Sly and, and uh, Sandra Bullock on that. Uh, Sylvester was, for the most part, terrific. Uh, I was a little amused by the fact that uh, when in between shooting scenes, he would go back in this in the uh, um, studio and hit golf balls into a net. And he actually had somebody standing there to put the golf ball on the tee before he whacked it. And as it turned out, at some point, he pulled his arm, that muscle. And we had, I think we had a day or two where we had to, you know, not shoot. And of course, he was in most of the scenes. Uh, he was terrific. Sandy was the best. They had originally cast someone else. And while we were in a week of rehearsal, um, it became clear that this person did not fill the bill. So when, when Sandra Bullock was brought on board, all of us fell in love with her. She had just the right tone of humor and passion and uh, attractiveness that the, the kind of uh, frisson between uh, Stallone's character and her really worked. There was something going on. And some of my favorite moments was actually with Rob Schneider. Um, I played this kind of wimpy uh, chief of police, which is going with the, the whole fact that, that uh, civilization has gotten too soft. And so you need to bring somebody like uh, uh, Stallone's character back to face Wesley Snipes character because the rest of us are too squeamish about blood and everything else. <laughs> so uh, Rob Schneider and I and uh, Benjamin Bratt in our in character are watching a video of what Stallone and Wesley Snipes characters are up to. And there's suddenly a, a, a huge explosion or something really violent going on. And Rob Schneider just goes, <laughs> and goes, <laughs> goes under the camera. And I just did this little beat and I looked down at my shoes. <laughs> Yeah. The notion being that uh, he had vomited on my <laughs> boots, but he was uh, he was fun. And then uh, uh, there was a British actor, Nigel um, Hawthorne, <clears throat> Nigel Hawthorne, 
and he, like me, had had uh, most of our career in theater. And uh, we actually spent a little time kind of, you know, surveying these people doing this film uh, with a lot of guns and things in it. And uh, so that was enjoyable for me too. It was a little snarky, but, um, you know, it's a funny movie as well as action and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was part of our fun (laughs) playing this uh, over theater is much more important. Dear boy. <laughs> Did you, um, I, I don't know if this is something that you're interested in, but I, I can see in the background, like an Avita poster in your 24th thing. Do you, did you keep anything from uh, Demolition Man? Let me see. Well, I did take one thing away from Demolition Man that proved to be very important when I did Shawshank, which I did exactly after doing Demolition Man. Uh, The producer of Demolition Man wanted me to look like uh, uh, the uh, actor that was in Sunset Boulevard, the German actor, I can't remember his name, famous actor-director, Eric von Stein. Takes, Takes me a little while, but it shows up. He wanted me to look like that. And so while he sat next to me in a makeup chair, he had hair and makeup shave all of the hair off my head, which I had never done before for anybody or any movie. But they were paying me a lot of money. I thought, well, and this was before I knew I was going to be doing Shawshank. Uh, and actually, when I auditioned did a screen test, they built a wig for me just for the screen test. A wonderful, very expensive wig. And I flew to New York to, to uh, read scenes on camera with Tim Robbins. And uh, so by the time they, they let me know that uh, I was going to be doing it, I was already bald. And... Uh, so when I got to Mansfield to uh, begin rehearsing and then filming, they bought another wig, an even better one, specifically designed. And it's the first thing you see from this kind of Presbyterian minister comb over thing. And so as you may know, uh, uh, we shot in chronological order in that movie, mostly for technical reasons. So the stippling and all of the aging stuff wouldn't have to go bounce back and forth from doing that. Once we got to the 60s, late 50s and 60s, then from then on, we just, we went right in and put the, the, uh, the stipple and the sh- shading and all of the, uh, and the hair graying and all that business. So by the time we were ready to do that, my hair had grown out somewhat. And this was the 60s. And I looked in the mirror and I what I saw was Bull Connor, uh, the, the, um, the guy down in Alabama who had uh, fought very hard against integration and had been involved in some um, actual violence against them, kind of a nemesis. 
And I thought, wow, this looks right for some reason. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, most uh, wardens do not spend 20 years in the same prison. They get moved around or they get moved up to some other managerial position or they get out and do something else. But in this case, uh, Warden Norton has been there for 20 years. And my thought was that in the same way that prison turns people into hardened, um, damaged people, more damaged than when they came in, um, my theory was that it would for a warden too, to be around that um, soul-sucking environment, particularly that prison, because it was just, it was like a terrible uh, 15th century um, hole for like the Inquisition or something. So um, I went to, to Frank and I said, well, what do you think? And, I, and he said, it's perfect. And so the second half of the movie, I have a completely different hair thing. I changed the glasses from these sweet little, again, ministerial uh, wireless rimmed glasses to this clunky, uh, dark, um, dark uh, ear things and, and uh, and to me, it said that this guy who was pretty uh, corrupt for the first uh, 18 years of his association with, with Andy and, and with the prison itself, this is what he looks like after all that time. And, uh, it, it worked out great. I was very happy and I owed it solely to Demolition Man and, uh, you know, when I had my head shaved, I remember going back to show it to my wife and our cat, Rosie the cat, walked into the room as I walked indoors and she took a look at me and she jumped back. <laughs> Honest to God, she was petrified. And uh, I, I think I, I don't have the head for a uh, permanent bald thing. So I'm happy I've retained a good amount of this for my age. That's yeah, my I, I had, story. I had, I had no clue. I just rewatched Shawshank the other day because I was excited to meet with you today. I never would have guessed you were wearing a wig, at least in the first half yeah. of that film. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I love that story. The other thing I, I love about Shawshank is you and I have something else in common. I, I, I read that you were on your way at first to become a priest. Mm -hmm. I'm a pastor. Is that um, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I've always tried to figure out how on a Sunday morning I can use the line, put your trust in the Lord, but your ass belongs to me. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> um, you might want to rethink that for a while. There's actually, I, I at conventions... I usually ask people if they want a, a um, you know, a quote from the movie or something. I ask their permission first before I put this on a photo that they'd be keeping, whether they mind the word ass 
on this yeah. phone. Line. No, no, I love that line. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so good. It's so good. I just, I love, I love that film. I, it's a classic to me. It's like an all-time top favorite film of mine, and um, I absolutely adore it. Uh, the, the last question I was going to ask, um, we, you had talked very much about your time in Vietnam, and thank you for your service. But I came across this um, story that I just thought was fascinating about you being reunited with one of your dog tags. Do you mind sharing what the, how that came about and kind of talking through that? Yeah, when uh, as as grunts in Vietnam, meaning troops who walked through the jungle and uh, jumped off helicopters, combat assaulted, basically were in the field in the jungle for like thirty days and then come back to the rear area for uh, uh, showers and uh, hot food and maybe a, a change of uh, fatigues, and then you go out again. So uh, because of, uh, I don't know if they did this in World War II or Korea, but everyone had been issued two dog tags uh, and on, you know, put it on a chain. And in normal uh, life in a, in a secure area, it wouldn't matter that there's this little clinking. And, but out in the jungle, no way. Some guys had rubber, um, a rubber strip around both of them so that they never, it was never metal to metal. But most of us kept one on the, on the uh, lavalier, on the, on the uh, chain. And the other one we laced into our uh, jungle boots. And the reason for that is um, in case we were to be, um, you know, uh, killed or, or really, um, I don't know how to quite put this, where you'd have trouble identifying who this sure person had been who this corpse was that if the foot was still intact you would have all the information you need right there so uh it, it's it's pretty gruesome to to think about but that's that's the way it was mm -hmm. so somewhere along the line i i uh lost track of the one that i had had in my boot uh and obviously i had changed uh shoes and boots and I had gone off to R&R &R in Australia and I came back and I didn't wear the combat boots there. So somehow I lost that, um, that dog tag. It was maybe even in a combat assault. I know I lost a wallet uh, scrambling out of a helicopter. We were under siege, under fire. So it might've been then, I don't know. Anyway, cut to 45 years later, maybe more, this woman in Philadelphia uh, heard about this story where someone had visited Vietnam long after the war, and in Da Nang had come across somebody who had this huge container of American soldier dog tags. And certainly, many are probably from uh, corpses or from deceased 
uh, or from wounded who, you know, for one reason or another, were separated from, from the dog tag. And so I got a call through my agent that this woman wanted to talk to me about Vietnam. I didn't recognize her name. I'm, you know, I, I just thought sometimes I get calls from people, um, you know, coming uh, kind of over eager fans or something. It's, it's sometimes it can be kind of creepy. That's why I always have these things uh, set up through my agent. But she, I, I took her call and she said, did you by any chance lose a dog tag when you were in Vietnam? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, somebody has found them. I found it and I have it here and I'd like to present it to you. We are an American Legion. Uh, she's part of the American Legion in uh, just outside Philadelphia. And she's been doing this for years off of this one discovery of, of these, this cache of uh, dog tags which the fellow who saw them first brought them back, didn't know how, you know, how to even go about finding the, the owners. And she took on that responsibility, doing tremendous um, um, research on the web and other sources and with the Army and Marine Corps and was finding people one by one. And mine had come up. So it happens I was in New York doing a, a guest star thing. And uh, I did have a day where I could shoot over to Philadelphia uh, to, to pick this up because I, it really, it spooked me originally. But then I thought, God, what a, what a metaphor of uh, making it through. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went by train to Philadelphia and I was met <laughs> by this about 10 or 15 contingent of motorcycle veterans. And sure enough, they, and, and they included some peace officers too. And uh, they were in their full regalia and including uh, mementos from, from Vietnam. Most of them, many of them were Vietnam veterans. So they were geezers like me, but they're on motorcycles. So they put me in this uh, very nice um, um, four by four and they took the lead, all these um, motorcycle mavens. And I was followed by, no, I wasn't followed. I, the whole thing was led by a couple of police cars with their sirens on. And we actually, paraded through from Philadelphia to uh, uh, this place in New Jersey where the American Legion Hall actually existed. And there amid uh, a, a little picnic lunch and uh, lots of uh, meetings with uh, other veterans in a little plastic case, I was presented with the dog tag, which looked like it had been through hell. Mm. And it was, it was bent and it, it was also, there was uh, some fire damage to it. I mean, they, it, it, they don't burn up, but they get kind of smoky. And I had my other one with me and it's like two different um, worlds represented here. 
And I, I was very moved by it. I didn't think it, I thought it was going to be kind of, well, this is kind of a funny deal. But um, I became very emotional as I accepted it and uh, saw all of these people out there honoring another veteran. I didn't go into great detail about how I felt about the Vietnam War, but I did very easily say that uh, the finest, some of the finest men I'd ever met uh, were over there, and most of them were very young. I was 23 years, 24 when I got drafted, and most of these were kids, uh, some of whom had a choice to be either going to jail for something or enlisting and others just got drafted. And um, so I didn't go into my political beliefs, that, that kind of thing, but I just, I was very moved to be considered a part of, of this group. Sure. And so I, the, my uh, dog tags have been reunited. I don't That's wear them anymore, but they are sure. together. <laughs> together That's such again. an amazing, amazing story and i love that uh i love that they made it their way back to you like you said it's a interesting full circle and not only are you a hero in uh movies and films and productions we love you're a hero in real life and we are just so grateful for your time so thankful that you're willing to sign for our group and uh man i i really just love this last hour together so thank you so much Bob. i really appreciate it <laughs> time flies I do, I do carry on don't i i thought this would be like a 15 minute thing and not because of you but because of me yes it's been over an hour but matt great meeting you uh even zooming here although we're all getting used to that yep. meeting with directors you used to have to go in a room and speak to them about uh, a film that they they were interested in you for now it's just well here i am office what do you want <laughs> kind of neat but i i enjoy talking with you and uh as i said i usually run over in these things uh but i hope there's something in here useful oh yeah this is amazing this is uh we've been looking forward to speaking with you since we started talking to scott and and your stories are incredible i honestly cannot wait to read your memoir um you mm -hmm. know it, when that comes out uh, we're, we're gonna be first in line are you troubled by autograph forgeries online? Do you collect spores, molds, and Ghostbusters memorabilia? Have you or your family been looking for a safe place to go to add to your collection? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Check out the containment unit on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at ghostbustersautographs.com. 